Today's text is from the Romans passage that Tyler just read for us. And it reminds me of something, oh, please be seated. I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess old style, I'd be sitting, y'all would be standing, but that's not how we do things now. All right. So today's text is just four verses long. It kind of reminds me of something that an old Baptist pastor of mine used to say when he was trying to wrap up the prayer meeting, make it strong but not long. This is a very strong, short passage. Um, and the word that Paul has for us has the power to transform the way we understand our lives, the way we experience our lives, and the way that we will live our lives. These words are from a, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a wide variety of early Christians uh, living in Rome in the first century. But if anything, the content of these words is even more relevant for us than it was for them. Salvation, Paul said, was nearer to them than when they first believed. So, of course, today, it's closer still. Now, we're reading this text on the first Sunday of Advent, the season in the Christian year when we are reminded of the strange place in time that we inhabit. We're wedged in between that first coming of Jesus when he arrived helpless and vulnerable um, to live and die and rise again and trample death down. And it's in between his second coming when he will come again in undeniable power to receive worship from friends and enemies alike. And it is an odd place to live, this in-between place. We look back on all the promises that God kept in the first advent, and we look forward to the promises that will be fulfilled in the second advent. And in between, we wait in this zone where the light from eternity has already reached us, but it's not yet here in its full brightness. Advent is a time of holy urgency. Christ has already opened the door in time and he set one foot over the threshold in history. And we're living in that split-second moment before his other foot steps inside, bringing the full glory of the light of day with him. Looking at it that way, you might expect that the air of the universe would be electric with anticipation and excitement, with every member of the household of God vibrating with song as we make preparation for the coming king and the consummation of all our joy is at hand. But human beings are not that good at waiting, are we? Well, it turns out we never have been. Maybe the first century Christians that Paul was speaking to didn't lose their minds with impatience when they had to wait five minutes instead of four minutes in line to check out at Target, or when it took 12 seconds for the website to download instead of three seconds. But when it comes to waiting for the dawn of eternal life, it turns out that they and we have the exact same problems. Paul opens this passage with this remark. He says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Do we get what he's talking about? Of course, when he says we're sleeping, he means something other than the physical sleep. He's addressing our spiritual state and his diagnosis is that the normal human response to waiting is to check out, to zone out, and generally just kind of drift off into a sluggish, listless, dull-witted lethargy. Throughout scripture, the concept of spiritual sleepiness is linked with darkness, 
sin, and death. In various places, it's associated with laziness, with ignorance, with apathy, and with a state of unreadiness. When you look at your own life, does that diagnosis strike you as accurate? I have to confess that I feel spiritually sleepy quite a lot. I believe that Christ will come again. We will affirm this in the creed just a few minutes after the sermon. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And we'll affirm it again during the Eucharist. We await his coming in glory. And I don't just believe it in my head. Absolutely, there is a sense in which I am genuinely longing for the reign of Christ to begin. But at the same time, I have to say that functionally, I frequently live like I'm not so sure. After all, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked on this earth. And he said he was coming back soon, but it's been a while. And frankly, this earth looks pretty dark much of the time. The light of the gospel sometimes seems like it's flickering. Things are hazy and dim. It's hard to see clearly. I'm tired, and sleep is easy. Here's the way I picture this passage. I know we're just barely moving into winter here right now, this year. (laughs) But I want you to imagine now that it's an early spring morning in Chicago on one of the years when we actually get spring. Um, The sky in the east over Lake Michigan is beginning to turn pink. The birds have been getting noisier and noisier for the last couple hours, and their singing gets louder as the light grows brighter. The wind is picking up. The day is coming closer. And this is not just any day. This is a really special day. It's the day your best friend, let's say it's not just a friend, but it's also a spiritual mother or father, someone you respect and look up to, but also really enjoy being with. And this friend is coming to pick you up. Maybe it's for a road trip that you guys have been planning for months. Maybe they're taking you to meet your grandchild for the first time. Maybe it's your wedding day. They're your best man or maid of honor. But you are sound asleep in your dark bedroom in the basement, sleeping off a hangover. The blackout blinds on all the windows are pulled shut. The room is hot. The air is kind of close and a little funky. The sheets are all wadded together in a ball at the foot of the bed, and the blanket pulled over your head is damp with sweat. Suddenly, your best friend appears at your house and flings open your bedroom door. Behind him, the early dawn sunlight streams in, and a gust of fresh spring air brushes past you. He calls your name and announces with a smile, today's the day, time to get ready. But as soon as you sit up and squint at him, your head starts throbbing. Your mind is fuzzy. You can barely remember what you had planned. So you mumble, come back in a few hours. Can you close the door behind you quietly? And you just flop your head right back down on your pillow. It's so much easier than getting up and getting ready. 
This, for me, is an accurate picture of how I frequently respond to the news that the day of my salvation is near at hand. Often when people come along and try to get me all excited about mission or the gospel or evangelism or the second coming of Christ, they seem weird and out of step. Their enthusiasm isn't just unrelatable, it's kind of annoying. Because hope is bright and beautiful, but it's also risky and uncomfortable and foreign feeling, especially when I'm used to wrapping myself in comfort. And while embracing, active, living hope in the return of Christ frequently feels out of reach, apathy, distractions, and cynicism are always near at hand, like cozy blankets, particularly cynicism. Cynicism is like a Snuggie, isn't it? You guys know what a Snuggie is? It's like the blanket with sleeves, right? It's not a blanket that you leave behind in the bed. It's designed so you can wear it all over the house. <laughs> and it protects you from getting involved in anything too strenuous or meaningful. <laughs> Cynicism is like a Snuggie. <laughs> it comforts like a blanket and it protects us like a shield. There's nothing like cynicism to buffer us against the pain of hope and the inconvenience of action. But of course, my cynicism and laziness are huge contributors to my lack of hope. They make me complicit in my own death-like sleep. I become both the perpetrator and the victim of these conditions. I feel hopelessness working upon me, but I can also feel myself cooperating with hopelessness. In the face of all this dreary reality, how can we hope? When we all live sleepy lives, lives that drag us backward toward death instead of forward toward life in Christ, what sort of hope is a sufficient talisman against this death-like trance? There are three ways that we find ourselves lit up by hope as we live in a world groaning in the dark, caught here between the first advent, which seems so long ago, and the second advent, which seems so far away. First, we have hope received. Then we have hope perceived. And finally, we have hope expressed. It always begins with hope received. The good news of the gospel is that hope arrives in our lives with Jesus. One of the three theological virtues, hope along with faith and love, is not something that we're asked to drum up inside ourselves from our own paltry resources. It is a gift we receive from God. If our hopelessness is an enchanted sleep, hope is the prince that comes to us while we are asleep in our transgressions and sin and awakens us with an act of love. We are like Lazarus sleeping in his tomb. Jesus came to him while he was dead and said, come out, and Lazarus received hope and life. We are like the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus sleeping on her couch. Jesus came to her when she was dead. He said, arise, and she received hope and life. And thank God that that's the case. As people trapped in the lethargy and torpor of spiritual darkness, we need the light of the world to shine upon us 
just like it did on the first Christmas long ago. In the words of Colossians 1, we recognize that it is the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is hope received, and everyone who places his or her faith in Jesus has full access to a treasure trove of hope. Then we move to hope perceived. Because the second way we relate to hope is the way we perceive our nearness to it. Paul tells us in no uncertain terms that the day of salvation is near. That is the spiritual reality. But the holy urgency of Advent dials up or dials down depending on whether we perceive the nearness of Christ and the nearness of the day of our salvation. Living in hope requires us, requires an ability to see spiritual realities, not merely earthly ones. One writer calls us the ability to live according to the nearness of prophetic perspective rather than according to mere chronological calculations. It is significant that Paul assumes that we know the time. This is how he begins the passage, because you know the time. But do we know the time? Jesus doesn't expect us to know the exact hour of his return, as we just heard in the Gospels, but he absolutely expects us to be spiritually astute, spiritually woke, as it were, when it comes to signs and seasons and times. This is from Luke's Gospel. Jesus said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Being able to perceive spiritual realities will make us seem out of step with earthly realities. Returning again for a moment to the people Jesus raised from the dead, do you remember how Jesus responded when he first heard the news that Lazarus was sick? He said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples said, well, if he sleeps, Jesus, he'll get better. So, you know, you might not want to do that. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And the same sort of thing happened when, Jesus, when Jairus asked Jesus to come to his house and heal his daughter. When they got to the house, everybody was crying and mourning because the little girl was dead already. Jesus told them to stop crying, that she was just asleep. Well, they stopped crying long enough to laugh at him. <laughs> and then Jesus proceeded to go in and raise her from the dead. When we walk in hope, according to our perception of spiritual realities, our friends won't always get that. And the cynics will laugh at us. But none of that fazed Jesus in the least. Nor did it interfere with his power to raise the dead when everyone around him had lost hope. What if, when Paul speaks to us about the spiritual reality of our age, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed? What if we took him seriously? 
What if instead of responding to these words as if they're a spiritual pep talk, we understood them to be a straightforward proclamation of reality? Have you seen those time-lapse films of the Earth taken from cameras up in space where you can see the light spreading over the Earth as it turns toward the sun? Whether we feel it or not, the Earth is rotating on its axis at over 1,000 miles an hour. And whether we feel it or not, our planet is hurtling through space at something like 67,000 miles per hour. And whether we feel it or not, the day of salvation is coming. We are living right on the cusp of history with the light on our face, but still backed by darkness. Our back may be exposed to the chill of darkness, but the sunlight of Christ shines on our face, inviting us to step forward. Will we lean into our identity as children of light, pressing forward to lay hold of the hope that is before us, or will we fall backwards into darkness, sleep, and death? This brings us to the third way that Christians relate to hope. Hope expressed. The day of Christ, though it is off in the future, is nevertheless throwing its light backwards into our present. A theologian named Emil Brunner said, Faith is indeed nothing but living in the light of what is to come. How we live expresses hope in that day, or it denies that hope. Paul writes here and elsewhere that indulging in the works of the flesh would be a contradiction of our faith and our hope. Because salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed, because the night is far gone, because the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's zero in on the urgency of casting off the works of darkness. That phrase is so compelling. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Just picture yourself having been sprawled on the couch, sleepy with sin, wrapped in your garments of darkness, your snuggie of selfishness and cynicism. And when the light breaks in, you just stand up and toss it aside, and you stride forward, and you strap on your glittering armor. Is it that easy? Well, no, and yes. Some sins are not as easily uprooted as others. Some sins are less like blankets that can be tossed aside, and some sins are more like an infestation of scabies that started off in the blankets, but after a while they burrow into our skin and are so many and tiny and resistant to our efforts to eradicate them. But I don't think Paul is underestimating the difficulty of throwing off the yoke of sin. He is, after all, the one that wrote these words, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. So it's not that Paul is naive about the clinginess of sin. What this exhortation is getting at is not the ease with which we can throw off the deeds of darkness, but our attitude toward them. Because of the hope that is given, we can see for ourselves in the light of day that the garments of sin are no longer necessary or desirable. 
We don't care for this type of clothing anymore. It was suitable for sleeping in a hot, moist, dark, smelly, close room when we were nursing a miserable hangover, but they are not fit clothing for a child of light who wants to begin living in the light today. Paul lists for us some specific sins that are absolutely incompatible with life lived in spiritual sunlight. Orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. It's a short list that falls into two categories, sins of selfish desires and sins of selfish pride. These are fleshly desires, desires that ignore our holy connection to God and to others. When Paul adds, make no provision for the flesh, he's not talking about our physical bodies, which were made good and remain good in the eyes of God despite being affected by the fall. Paul is using the word flesh as a shorthand for the desires within us that consider only ourselves. Left to our natural, unredeemed selves, all our pressing desires are selfish ones. These are the desires that pull us backward into a darkness where only our self and our immediate cravings are considered. Some parties are feasts that offer opportunity to bless our neighbors and give thanks to God. But some parties are orgies, just thin excuses to indulge in excess. Likewise, drunkenness and sexual immorality are ways we abuse good things for frivolous and selfish ends. Quarreling is a cheap way to sustain the illusion that I'm smarter or brighter or better than you are. If we're having trouble pulling out of an argument that's clearly going nowhere, we are indulging selfish pride. And the same goes for jealousy. The idea that I ought to have, that I deserve to have, the good things I see others enjoying, betrays an unholy attachment to selfish pride. As children of the light, we have no use for these things. They do nothing for us. They have no place and no utility in our lives. Paul's admonition is to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its selfish desires. That idea, make no provision, is interesting. Some sins require a sustained fight to get rid of, but apparently others may simply die of neglect when we stop feeding them. When you experience a surge of sexual desire for someone other than your spouse, your immediate task is to simply to fail to act on it. Don't follow through feeding it in your imagination or in action. When you feel that visceral urge to keep the argument going just long enough for one more brilliant, irrefutable point, just don't. The urges and drives that compel us towards self-defeating ends are real urges, but they cannot be met in these dark ends. Any true need can and will be met legitimately in the kingdom of light. What would happen if instead of feeding our fleshly desires, we made every provision for holy ones? What would it look like if we stopped feeding the vices that give us spiritual hangovers and started nourishing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Because it's not enough, of course, to cast off the deeds of darkness. The second half of the exhortation is to put on the armor of light. Now, there are several ways to understand that armor. Paul is most definitely referring to spiritual armor that he talks about in other letters. 
the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. But it can also be understood as the bridal gown of the church, the white robes of righteousness. And these are good deeds. We are called as children of light to let our light shine before all people so that those who see our good deeds give glory to the Father in heaven. But it's not just good deeds that we put on. We can put on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul writes, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your light, life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When we express our hope by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, we testify with our lives to the fact that the day of salvation is coming near. When the world sees the church clothed in white robes of righteousness, righteousness, they can know that the bridegroom is coming. They can't necessarily see him, but they can see us, and we can see him. We are awake. Our lamps are trimmed and filled with oil, and our faces are turned toward the day, breaking in the east. We receive hope. We perceive the nearness of hope, and we express that hope through the medium of our whole lives, our words and our bodies and our creativity and our energy and our thoughts. That is what it means to live lives of hope in this half-lit season between Christ's first coming and his second. This is what it means not to wish for the light while we sit in darkness enveloped by sin, but to hope in the light with our whole selves because we are in Christ and he is in us. I want to close with a very practical and immediate example of how we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ and live as children of light, not just as individuals, but as the people of God together right here at Emmanuel. Just a few weeks ago, Father Aaron came to the parish council to introduce the vision that he believed he had received from the Lord regarding Emmanuel's future. Uh, This is a primary role of a rector, to listen to the Lord on behalf of the body, to peer into spiritual realities, and then to seek confirmation of what he sees from the body. So if you were here on November 13th, you played a part in, in this process already. In speaking with the parish council, Father Aaron began the presentation with this verse concerning what Emmanuel is called to be. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Those were the guiding verses for the vision, and the guiding imagery for the vision was that Emmanuel is to be a spiritual beacon in Chicago, shining the light of Christ. Now, when I heard this vision for Emmanuel at that meeting, I mostly paid attention to the specifics of the plan. (laughs) The need to go to two services, maybe we'll open a ministry center in Uptown, more training for the staff. I caught the gist of the idea of our being a spiritual beacon, and that did resonate with me, but I didn't really internalize it very deeply. But what happened next changed things. Several days after Father Aaron requested feedback from the parish council, but several days before he had discussed it with anyone else, He received and forwarded to us an email from a young woman in our congregation. 
someone who had no prior exposure to the vision plan at all, but she'd been praying for the church. And here are the first few sentences of that email. She wrote, I was praying for Emmanuel this morning, just thanking him for a great church and blessing what he has already done. I was also praying for you and leadership. I felt like the Lord was saying that this church is a city on a hill and a light to the world. There was a sense that people would be attracted to the church because it is a light in the darkness. I saw a picture of a bonfire and people from the world coming to warm their hands and people from Emmanuel were ministering to them. A beacon of light in a dark city and people being attracted to that light. Well, reading that email, my relationship to the future of Emmanuel shifted a little bit. I had already heard, accepted, confirmed the vision. And in that sense, I was already aligned with the vision. That was vision received. But, oh my goodness, hearing the specific images of the spiritual beacon and the city and the hill were independently confirmed by two different people who were both peering into the spiritual realm for us with such specificity and such precise timing. That was a vision perceived, sharpening my focus, preparing for me for action. And now we, Emmanuel, as the local incarnation of the body of Christ, are poised to express the hope we have in Christ Jesus right here between the first and second advent here in Chicago. Let me close us in prayer with Paul's words to the Philippians. Please pray with me. Dearest Father, let us become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, shining out like stars in a warped and crooked generation as we hold firmly to hope and to your word of life. Amen.